Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam. Pharmacists to care. And good morning to you, and thank you so much for joining me here on 101.9 High FM. My name is Kathy Kayla, and uh, every Monday at this time, between 10 and 11, I speak to some of the world's greatest experts on health management. We look at diseases, we look at causes. I think that one of the biggest causes of disease today has to be stress. If you look at lifestyle and how everything is related to stress and how we, and actually the, our lifestyle choices often, um, are influencing our levels of stress. I know just from looking at our news cycle, we can't even get through in a normal day. There's, there's just no way to cover all the news because there is just so much and the news cycle is so short. You know, 18 people killed in a, in a car accident this morning. It will be off the news chart by 12 midday. That is how fast the news cycle is. Whereas in days gone by, that would be a story that would stay with us for a few days and would be developing. And then they'd look at the causes and then they'd speak to the experts and then they'd speak to the victims. And then everything is just happening so fast. How do you cope? I know I can hear you hyperventilating. I'm also feeling like that. So I thought, well, you know what? One of the best stress uh, stress features that I've ever done was with an expert by the name of Richard Sutton. Now, if you know Richard, if you've listened to High FM for any length of time, you'll know Richard Sutton. Um, he currently works. Well, I'll give you a little bit of background. He's uh, his CV. You know what? It's too long to read. So you go to his website at suttonhealth.co.za and uh, go and just check out his background. But I'll just in. In summary, he currently works with leading athletes and top companies in providing stress and performance solutions. He now works for Maria Sharapova. So is she going to be next in the finals at Wimbledon, Richard? Well, well I mean, I'm just thinking like what you did for Kevin Anderson. Yeah, yeah, so Kevin was one of my clients, and he was going through crisis, and, and I got called in. And the same for Maria. So we're preparing for 2019. She hasn't had a good couple of years. Uh, so I got called in a few months ago, and... Uh, all preparations are, are looking very positive for a good 2019 season for her. Amazing. So right now you're dividing your time. I divide my time between ESO and, and abroad, yes. So proud of you. Oh, so thanks. flipping proud thanks of you. Thanks so much. Anyway, uh, Richard has been in professional sport for over 17 years, working with two South African national teams, a winning Olympic team, six tennis players who have been number one in the world. Uh, he's an academic lecturer post-grad, locally and internationally. Uh, he consults to several, several of South Africa's foremost companies on Presentism. Presentism. Present, so basically, presentism. Work, presentism. Well, that's so, so interesting that you. Is that like being also. present? <laughs> so <laughs> basically, <laughs> coming to work when you're sick, yes. depressed, anxious, disengaged, injured, or any of the above. You're showing up. Um, but that's just all showing you're doing. up. And, and basically, the burden on the South African economy. There was a very interesting study by Stellenbosch University looking at the cost, direct cost, of presenteeism on the South African economy. And they basically, through a series of mathematical models, worked out that presenteeism is costing the South African economy in excess of 200 billion rand every single year. That is, that is more than tourism brings in. So that's we, we, we confront with a major, major crisis here. Yeah. And that's why you're. And that's that's one of my portfolios is managing presenteeism. And then productivity and productivity and 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 engagement and health. Very much so. Okay, Um, he's he's a published author. The stress code from surviving to thriving. We'll talk about that in a little while. So this really is, uh, you know, 
your area? This, yeah, I, I have. You know, the, the how I got into the space is quite interesting because, so as as you mentioned, for 17 years I've been in professional sport, 15 years academic lecturer, 10 yeah. years I've been dealing with complex health issues. For the last five years I've been helping companies overcome their their challenges from a health perspective, presenteeism uh, perspective, and productivity productivity perspective. And the resounding call, and there, there wasn't a day that went by where I wasn't asked for a solution for stress or how to manage stress. So everything was funneled in one direction. It that kills direction creativity. Was, it kills so many processes that you actually need to be effective in the workplace. That, that's the one face of stress. And as I'm going to, you know, go through through the narrative today's yeah. of today's talk, there's two faces of stress. One is actually a positive face, where stress offers us the potential to thrive, excel, exceed our own abilities and potential. It's 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 energizing. But stress, if it's turned on too long and it's inappropriate and it's not well managed, can become highly highly destructive. Hundred percent, because it works. It works the other way. When what, your when your mountain of work is so big, you end up just pushing papers around the desk. It's almost that freeze, uh, yeah, yeah. freeze situation or scenario. Yeah. But you know, they say that seventy five percent of or experts, the research shows that seventy five percent to ninety percent of doctors' visits are stress related. Seventy three percent of mental health issues are stress related. Seventy seven percent of physical health issues are stress related. And you look. This is one of the most alarming stats in recent times. Is Almost 50% of the world's working population say that in the last five years specifically, the stress levels have escalated to a point where they're not managing it successfully. We're confronted with an absolute crisis. And the, in fact, the World Health Ep- uh, Organization cites stress as the health epidemic of the 21st century. It's the epidemic of the 21st century. We never were confronted with these type of scenarios and this type of crisis before in human history. The interesting thing about the stress response is that initially it was there for our survival to help us adapt and cope with, with demanding situations, help us adapt to change, cope with change, thrive under adversity, you know, basically overcome very hostile environments. That's, that's why we have the stress response. The system that used to protect that now has become the catalyst in our demise through societal changes. And that's, that's really what I want to talk to you about today is going back to some of, uh, you know, the habits that we used to have and some of the practices that we used to have in terms of connecting with others and the way we see things and the way we view things and, and reaching out in periods of challenge and strife. One of the most profound things you said to me, um, when we did the, the feature on, on stress previously is that there's no such thing as getting rid of stress. You can only manage it, and you can manage it well or you can manage it poorly. But the degree of stress will always be there because there will always be stress in our life. That's the nature of life. Exactly. So there was a, it's funny you say because there was an interesting Yale study, and it was looking at how many times a week do we get stressed or how many times a month do we get stressed. And they found that the average person, not someone who's subjected to high-pressure situations, the average person is subjected to about six stresses in a week. So if you, if your narrative, if your whole mindset is I've got to avoid stress, you're going to fail abysmally. It's, it's impossible. You know, you're going to be confronted with the stress whether you like it or not in that week and most likely a few times in that week. But South Africa is a very unique um, country within the, the framework of stress in that according to Bloomberg, most incredible study, 74 countries, the industrialized nations of the earth or of the planet were assessed in terms of their stress profiles. Who's the most stressed and how's it impacting the economy? And what they found was South Africa's at the forefront. South Africa was number two on the list of most stressed nations on the planet. 
And they, they used seven equally weighted variables. Uh, they took information from right. the World Health Organization, Transparency International, the, the UN, uh, the CIA also contributed information. So this is a, an incredible, incredible, uh, you know, perspective. And, and we have to stand up and take notice. South Africa is at the forefront of this crisis and we do need to manage it. I spend half my time here, half my time abroad. When I, when I step back into SA, I love it here. To be honest with you, I really love South Africa. Um, but, but I can feel the angst. You can feel, it's palpable when you get, when you get off the plane. When you're here for long term, you don't notice. When you're here for a long term, you become desensitized. Mm. But I think we have to stand up and take note. It's not a train switch, not a crisis. The things we can do to manage it. And more importantly, the things that we, we can do to actually harness stress, to capitalize on what stress has to offer. Because stress offers us the ability to excel in life. We need it. Our best performances, our best, our best, showcase of our potential is in a crisis and we need we need to realize that the whole narrative is really stress is big and bad and and i can give you stats about the world economy you know the u.s economy it's stress costing u.s economy 300 billion uh, u.s dollars every single year australian economy 14.2 billion australian dollars every i can give you stats till till the cows come home but the bottom line is that's the one side that's that's the one face of stress the other is potential kevin anderson a great example so 19 months ago, Kevin was confronted with possibly the end of his career. He sustained a major injury. Um, it's, you, imagine working your whole life towards a certain goal. And then your body lets and then you, you down. And then your body lets you down. And, and you weren't finished your career. You, you've earned a tremendous amount of money, but not enough necessary to retire. You, and you, you still got more to go. So 19 months ago, you get that distress call. You get that, you know, I, I don't know what to do. I've got conflicting opinions by orthopedic surgeons. Where, where should I go? And, and basically what, what happened is Kevin came back here and we, we worked on it. We deconstructed his life. But the difference between the Kevin that we know today, the Kevin who's in the Wimbledon final, the Kevin who's in the U.S. Open final, the Kevin who's five in the world and not 70 in the world, the difference is not his ability. I've known Kevin 17 years. His ability is the same. Well, in the last five, six years, his ability is the same. But certainly what's shifted. He's tapping into something. He's tapping into his mindset. He's now fearless. He's embracing the crisis. Instead of crumbling under pressure, he's saying, this is my opportunity. And if he goes to a fifth set, he, he, he believes in himself. So stress has the opportunity to change lives, and we must realize that. Don't dismiss stress as merely a negative that has to be avoided at all costs. Yes, there are scenarios and there are situations where stress can be very antagonistic to health. But there are scenarios where stress can be very health-promoting and health-enhancing. You can use it as a springboard to tap into something. Exactly, exactly. You know, and and funny enough, one of the the, the main features in terms of turning the negative into the positive is the one, the way we see it. And I've just given a, a brief scenario of how Kevin's changed his position now is thriving and excel. And I can go into three different Harvard studies just showing you how powerful uh, perception and reframing stress is. But what I wanted to talk today was uh, talk to uh, you about today was was how when we behave or how we behave during a crisis determines how stress is going to affect us. And this is why women actually have something very powerful. Their intrinsic nature offers tremendous stress buffering. And I'm going to explain why by going into the biology Please of stress. You, okay, you got, my, you got my attention, Richard. So what I'm saying, in a yeah. nutshell, in a, to summarize, is that women have the power to confront our stress crisis head on through their intrinsic nature. Oh, as in the collective, intrinsic, oh, as in, in South African family. Well, if, all, all women. 
Auburn, for that matter. And I'm going to explain why. So first I have to just explain a little bit about what happens when we get stressed. Okay. Okay. So fundamentally, stress is about two waves. Okay. So we have the first wave. It's called the sympathomedullary pathway. We, we feel fear. Fundamentally, the, the, the base experience of stress is fear. And then our, our brain reacts and our adrenal glands react. So we produce adrenaline. So it's, it upregulates our nervous system. That's the heart rate that we feel. It's the a respiration. Switch. It's a fight or flight. It's ex- exactly. right now you have to take action. Exactly. Our breathing is faster. We can become more gesturous. Our palms start to sweat. We have our immune system activated. We, uh, we release endorphins. Our blood pressure spikes a little bit. But that is the face of adrenaline. We also have another wave. Okay, which is known as the HPA axis. Okay, so this is where we, where cortisol kicks in. That first wave is very taxing on the body. It's an amazing for a here and a now survival situation, but literally you'll fall over if that first wave is activated for too long. So the second wave kicks in. And the second wave is based principally on cortisol, the hormone. We've all heard of the stress hormone cortisol. The synthetic version is cortisone. But talking about the first wave, what happens in the first wave from a negative standpoint is that it redistributes blood. So the blood that normally goes to the reproductive system, the urogenital system, the digestive system, our skin, the brain says, look, I don't need you now. I don't need you there right now. Let's move it away. Let's let's go send it to the brain where you need to be alert and you need to be focused. Isn't the body brilliant? It's, it's the most amazing thing. <laughs> the body also says that we need a slightly more higher amp in or certainly more charge in our blood pressure. So you spike blood pressure. So the two basic shifts that we have in our biology is a spike in blood pressure and the redistribution of blood. So if you don't have a little bit of blood in your digestive tract or your reproductive system for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour, two hours, not a train smash. You do that week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, you're going to have major health issues. And this is why so many people who've been stressed for long periods of time, through the redirection of, bl- of blood, have renal and urinary comp- compromise. So this is where they start developing like, problems with their bladder and their reproductive system, like infertility as well. You compromise the physical structure. Um, so there's, because of this major redistribution, your physical structure actually gets a little bit weaker. Your immune system is also mobilized in that process. So you, you get a very active, the adre- adrenaline activates the immune system. So you get a lot of inflammatory disorders and immune disorders that can manifest with, with this excess adrenaline. The nervous system also takes a little bit of a hit. Um, so you can develop neurological disorders. Cardiovascular compromise is very common. Um, because of that spike in blood pressure, you're looking at a 30% increased risk in strokes, 30% increased risks in heart attacks in response to this, the surge of adrenaline for long periods of time. And then fundamentally, we're looking at hormonal disorders as well. So that's the big shift that takes place through adrenaline, fundamentally. And it's all about surviving the here and the now at the expense of the future. You have to. There's going to be no future unless you survive the here and the now. So scenario, I mean, to think of, think of, uh, I think anyone who's ever lost their child in a supermarket or in a shopping center. You're feeling adrenaline. That's adrenaline. That, that, that those immediate feelings. adrenaline. You, Heart your, 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 your attention is peaked because Laser now focus. you are, as you're turning around, you are scanning faster than your head can spin. You're actually scanning the area to see where your child is. And your brain is thinking and you are acting without actually thinking. I mean, very, that, very, very much so. So, and so you actually get much sharper senses. So it's funny you say sharper. scanning. Your eye, your eyesight is much clearer yeah. in response to that, that first wave that we experience when we're stressed. Um, sensations, touch, taste, far sharper. The only sense that is compromised when we have that adrenal surge is our hearing. 
because loud noises will distract us. Yes. So we yeah. actually get this blunting of hearing. And a lot of people with um, prolonged adrenal activation, prolonged adrenaline in the system actually start developing auditory disorders. Um, tinnitus and, and other such disorders can manifest from that. So that's the first wave. It's the here and the now and survival at all costs. The second wave really focuses on the immune system and metabolic system. So it's cortisol comes in and says, look, adrenaline's mobilized our immune system excessively, but we need to quieten it down. So cortisol says, okay, well, I'm going to manage the immune system. I'm going to suppress it to a certain degree, create a little bit more balance. So cortisol comes in to actually balance the system initially. It also has a metabolic role. So adrenaline, which I didn't mention earlier, also mobilizes energy into your body. So fats and proteins and, and sugars get released into the bloodstream. They're to be used for the here and now. You need Superpowers need super energy. Cortisol says, okay, guys, guys, slow it down. Let's everyone calm down and starts putting everything back into, you know, so cortisol, one of its roles is the deposition of energy. And this is why we often put on weight. (laughs) This is why (laughs) we're saying don't panic. We're going to email all this, all everybody in the shopping center. Yeah. Very, very much so. (laughs) So, so here we got, if I were to say what's going to happen if cortisol is in your system for too long, your immune system becomes very suppressed. You know, so if someone coughs in Cape Town, you'll catch it here. It's, it's literally that level of suppression that can manifest. Also, what happens if cortisol is in the system for years, what ha- your cells actually don't respond to cortisol, which means your immune system can dysregulate. You can develop asthmas and allergies and, and those type of uh, issues that are, that almost fall part of an autoimmune uh, pathology or auto within the autoimmune space. So those, each of these hormones has, has a fundamental issue and we have to acknowledge that um, they're great for the here and the now. If in the system too long, it's a little bit of a disaster. But the big issue with cortisol is not the metabolic, not the fact that it's there depositing fat and, and put it, you putting on weight in response to elevated cortisol and your appetite's increased and your immune system suppressed. That's not the big issue with cortisol. The big issue with cortisol is its effect on the brain and the nervous system. Literally, uh, uh, there's no other way to say it but bluntly, cortisol shrinks your brain. Yeah. Um, We've all felt it. We, we stress for long periods of time. We cannot think clearly. Not only does it shrink the brain, it reduces the size of the brain, but it also creates compositional changes. So normally the brain is comprised of different cells. You know, you've got white matter, you've got gray matter, and you've got other cells as well within the brain structure, broader brain structure. And there's a, a certain proportion that has to be in place in order for us to function effectively. So basically it's like having a computer, the hard drive, and all the cabling. They have to be in a certain ratio, a certain proportion. You've got too much cabling, not not a great thing. You've got too much hard drive, no cabling. Inefficient, yeah. Exactly, in, in insufficiencies. But what happens in the response to cortisol is elevated cortisol in the bloodstream and within the brain changes the composition of the brain. So you have far more white matter than you would normally have. So far more connections and less of a hard drive. And that can create major slowdowns in functionality and certainly compromise within the brain itself. Oh, wow. You also have regions of the brain that become very disconnected. So normally what happens is you've got this incredible interface between the region of the brain, all all liaising, all connecting, there to facilitate functionality in our day-to-days. What happens in response to elevated cortisol is they start disconnecting. But what becomes hyper-connected are the emotional centers. The two emotional centers of the brain become very, very connected, which means that 
whatever happens in your life becomes an emotional experience as opposed to a rational experience or an intellectual or, or, an, uh, or an intelligent experience. The implication being that you're then making every decision you make is based on emotion rather than ration and intellect. It, it becomes based on emotion and you be, literally you start setting off the stress axis because emotion sets it off in the first place and now mm. everything's become hyper-emotional. So that's, that's one, another feature what, uh, what takes place. But what's, what's quite interesting and actually very concerning is the fact that stress hormones are shut down through a negative feedback loop. So what happens is when our stress hormones rise, the, a certain region of the brain, the hippocampus, detects this rise in a stress hormone and says, look guys, shut it down. It's enough now. We don't need to produce any more. We've got a sufficient amount. But they've got a lot of cortisol receptors, which means that every time we have a rise in cortisol, there's an implication on this region of the brain. And if cortisol has been in our system for extended periods of time, you could just eventually can't shut down the stress axis. And this is, I mean, there's a a perfect example of people who get stressed in the beginning of the week. And by the weekend, they're still stressed and they don't even know what they're stressed about. But their system can't shut down. Some of us will experience it in the morning. We get we get agitated, and the whole day we just remain agitated. We can't shut it down. It's not only that. It's it's also if you go on holiday. Sometimes if you go on holiday, by the end of the holiday, you don't feel like you've had a holiday because you haven't unplugged. I, I think that that's what you're saying is so important. It can take a long time to unplug, and that's because this particular region of the brain can get corrupted in response to elevated cortisol. So what I'm saying is the brain's going to shrink. The brain's going to disconnect. You're going to have issues in terms of composition of the brain. So the actual structure of the brain is going to change. And lastly, the centers that shut down the stress axes become further corrupted. If I were to say what is the collective emotional and behavioral effect of all of those components, I would say it looks like fearful, distracted, antisocial behavior, loss of, loss of goal orientation, yeah. anxiety, aggressive outputs, uh, outbursts, poor attention span, emotional instability, poor memory. I can go on and on and on. That is the face of excessive cortisol in our system. So principally what we have is we have a situation where when we get stressed, we release two major stress hormones. And they each have benefits in the short term, and they have detrimental effects in the long term. You're on 101.9 High FM. I'm Kathy Kaler. My guest is Richard Sutton. And uh, what a fascinating, fascinating guy to speak to. Love speaking to Richard. If you've got any questions, uh, then please get in touch. How do you do that? Well, you can send an SMS on 34519. That's the SMS line. Those SMSs are charged at 1 Rand 50. You can also send either a WhatsApp message or Telegram on 061-895-1019. That number again, 061-895-1019. If you think about... If you think about stress in your life, on a scale of 1 to 10, where would you say your average is? 1 being a little and 10 being a lot. Where would you say your stress levels lie? Let's do a quick poll. 061-895-1019 or SMS 34519. This is the Discam Medical Monday. I'm Kathy Kayla. My guest is Richard Sutton, and we are talking stress and stress management. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists to care. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Kathy Kayla, and this is the Discam Medical Monday. And um, if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking to Richard Sutton. Richard, uh, he is a 
what is the actual title? Are you are you still a neurovascular practitioner? You can say that, or you can call a visceral osteopath. Um, I'm basically completely unconventional and unorthodox. There isn't a title for what you do, actually. <laughs> no, no, no. Just I love education, <laughs> so I study as much as I can. But he currently works with leading athletes and top companies in providing stress and performance solutions. Now, stress, South Africa's leading the way in terms of our stress levels. So it's not a matter of getting rid of stress. It's, man- it's a matter of understanding stress, understanding that there are two types of stress. There's the short-term stress where your body goes into this fight-or-flight mode and you have to take action now and you have to, you know... Helps you thrive, help you cope, yes. helps you adapt. It's there for success. It's a springboard. It's a springboard. Springboard to success. Um, and then there's the long-term stress where you're living from Monday to Sunday and you don't bother... As Richard was, you gave an example. Mm. You said Monday something happens, you get stressed, and you're stressed the rest of the weekend. You don't even know what you're stressed about. And don't know how to shut it down. And don't know how to shut it down. That's and then the you chronic start, effects of stress. And then you start the next Monday and you're already stressed. So uh, we'd be, we've been speaking about adrenaline. We've been speaking about cortisol. If you've missed this, you'll be able to uh, to hear the full podcast on highfm.com. You can also check out Richard's website, which is suttonhealth.co.za. Or Instagram, which is at suttonhealth. See, Saturn Health, just Google it, it'll all come up there. Okay, so, um. Yeah, so we're talking about, so we had those two big stress hormones in the short term offering benefits, and the long term can be disastrous in terms of health and functionality. But what a lot of people don't know, and what's only recently been discovered, is when we get stressed, there's a third hormone in the equation. A third hormone is released in response to a stress. And it's released from a specific area in the brain called the pituitary gland, the back of the pituitary gland. And this hormone is nothing short of remarkable. It's known as oxytocin. If I were to say, what does oxytocin do? Literally, it it turns off all the negative effects of cortisol and adrenaline. Ooh, can we buy it? (laughs) You actually can. (laughs) Okay. So so just from a behavioral perspective, what is the face of... Excess cortisol and adrenaline in the system. It's poor memory, emotional instability, anxious, aggressive outbursts, distracted, antisocial behavior, fearful, loss of goal orientation, poor attention span. What oxytocin does for you on a behavioral, on a behavioral level, from a behavioral perspective, is something completely unique. It develops self-esteem. So we feel better about ourselves. It in- infuses calmness into our system. It promotes fearlessness. And remember, fearlessness is the, the opposite face um, of the normal stress response, which is fear. It's, it's antagonistic to the actual fear response. It promotes self-belief. It's, it promotes empathy, connectivity to others. When we get in the, confronted with a crisis, the first thing we want to do is want to reach out and, and look for support, engage with others to help, help get through the crisis. It also builds trust in others, optimism, ev- the exact opposite of the Everything other two stress in the world. Hormones. But that's the yeah. emotional or behavioral perspective. From a physical standpoint, it also, one, it lowers cortisol. It has a direct effect on cortisol, lowers cortisol. has anti-inflammatory effects. Remember that adrenaline causes inflammation. Oxytocin lowers inflammation. has antioxidant effect. Adrenaline creates more oxidization. Oxytocin has an antioxidant effect. It lowers blood pressure. The biggest risk factor in terms of stress is, is that spike in blood pressure, which can damage blood vessels in the heart, damage blood vessels in the brain, and that therefore put you at risk of heart attacks and strokes. It rebuilds the brain. 
it rebuilds the brain by increasing a, the, the production of a particular molecule called BDNF, which is basically brain rocket fuel. It rebuilds the body by increasing certain hormones that are responsible for rebuilding the body. It increases key neurochemicals, serotonin, dopamine. It enhances our behavior, as I've just described. It is nothing short of remarkable. And most importantly, what oxytocin does is it inhibits the emotional command center of the brain. The center that drives the stress response, the fear center, gets inhibited through exposure to oxytocin. So we have far more stability in a crisis. And it doesn't just lower stress from that perspective. It lowers it on on all perspectives. So you're covering the psychological and the biological basis um, in terms of oxytocin. So my, my question um, is, or I'm sure that the question that you're probably asking yourself is that if we release this most remarkable hormone, why is it that we become victims of stress as opposed to thriving in adversity all the time every day? And to answer the question is that oxytocin is not in the system I, very I long. I feel like I can actually just get up and leave because you're asking the questions that I'm thinking <laughs> okay, about. Okay, asking. so I'll let you answer me. You ask me the <laughs> no, question. no, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's okay. fine. So you've it's asked me great. the question now is why don't we feel like it? Some answering. So, <laughs> so the, the answer, to answer the question is why don't we feel like it? We've got this amazing hormone in our body. It's, it's anti-venom for the other stress hormones. So we should only derive the benefits and no, none of the negative. Why is it that we're not immune or completely buffered from the adverse effects of stress? And the reason why is oxytocin is metabolized very quickly in the body. So when we initially get stressed, we release oxytocin. That's pretty much it. The other stress hormones, we, we initially get stressed, and they will continue to be released through the process. Oxytocin will only stay in the system between one and six minutes. Well, that that leads to my other question, which is, you know, if you've got high levels of oxytocin, um, does it... Which one's which one is going to work, the cortisol or the oxytocin? Oxy- but, but you've actually just answered oh, the just question answered because question. cortisol can be um, prolonged, can be sustained right, for long, you know, for it long comes periods in, of time. Yeah, it, right. it can peak, you know, okay. well into the street, you know. So the good the one we get experience. a booster, but the but the, it's an initial booster, and it, so science. But the bad seen, one is long term. Scientists have been saying why? Why is it that we we have this this hormone release? It, it has all these fundamental, like these powerful properties that are are fundamentally enhancing and, and health promoting, but it doesn't stay in our system very long. And uh, it was actually a team at the University of California that answered the question. It was Shelley Taylor, if I remember correctly, who answered the question as, as, as to why we release oxytocin in this one burst. And she answered the question by saying is that when we release oxytocin, it's a, it's a hormone or molecule, neuromolecule that facilitates connectivity. When we expose oxytocin, the first thing we want to do is reach out to the person next to us or reach out to our family or reach out to our spouse or reach out to our friends. That's what oxytocin makes us want to do. And the reason why that is beneficial because we handle crisis better as a collective. Hmm. We handle crisis as a team far more effectively than as an individual. And if you think about it, society has become very dysfunctional. Historically, whenever we are confronted with a crisis or ever confronted with a scenario that was 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 a perceived threat, we would band together historically. We would form a unit and confront it together. Community, the sense and of that, community. And that in itself would protect us. Yeah. I'll go into the next point here. But but now what's happened with society has become very intolerant, hyper-intolerant of failure, of weakness, of insecurity. Of inability. So what's, what we do now is when we're confronted with a stress or a crisis, we introvert. We move into a shell, the exact opposite of what we need to do. 
The reason why we need to connect, so we've got this hormone that facilitates connection, but the reason why we need to connect is because when we connect, we release more oxytocin. The most incredible thing is that the only way outside of this scenario that oxytocin is released is through physical contact. When we, when we get a hug, when we have eye contact, when there's touch, when there's more intimate behavior, we release more oxytocin. And we can continue the release process as opposed to stress, which gives us one, one shot at it, there to reach out. But the most interesting thing is, is not just physical contact. It's also the way we behave. When we, the way we behave determines our chemistry. So when we start behaving in a pro-social manner, so connecting to others, sharing our experience of stress with others, being more charitable, giving of our time materially, being more caring, being more empathetic, being more compassionate, we release oxytocin, the most incredible thing. The only hormone in the body that is released in response to how we behave with the outside world or how we behave to how the engage. outside world. That's incredible. How we engage, exactly. So it's not just we have this 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 interesting dynamic where if we there's more physical more touch more more body contact we release oxytocin and it's not just with it's with animals with people. No, that's it. I'm going to go and book a massage. <laughs> no, it will release oxytocin. Absolute massage is one of the big triggers. Well, it's human touch. Human touch, but human touch is one of those factors. But what what is being driven home time and time again and pioneered largely by Yale University is the impact of our behavior within the context of the world around us. The way we behave determines the degree of oxytocin release, which ultimately determines the level of protection we have from the stress crisis that we're confronted with in this day and age. Just before we get on to the next point, Richard, um, Chaim wants to know, is it very bad being on stress medication for many years? What stress medication is All that? Right. We'd so have we to need, find out. Okay, so we need to know what the medication is, Chaim. Is it anti-anxieties? Is it antidepressants? Is it uh, what is? What do you mean? By, yeah, what do you mean by anti-stress? So we need a bit of And how many years? Us. Give us a little bit yeah, of detail. Yeah, a little more information would be amazing. Okay, okay. thank you. All right, so, so here we've got... Pro-social behavior. So there, there was a very interesting study, um, and it's it's basically it was in the American Journal of Public Health, and it looked at about a thousand individuals over a five-year period. So what it looked at it was the effect of caring for others on our health when we're confronted with stress. So what it did was it looked at past year stressful events, whether the participant had provided tangible assistance to friends or family members, and it used public records records to assess mortality and looked at medical records to assess um, health issues as well. Okay, caring for others. Caring for others. Tangible reduces caring for others. our stress. This this is what they were trying to establish: what the effect of caring for others would do on our stress and our health. So what they looked at was over the year, how much stress did you have? What impact did it have on you? So what they found was if you have in a 12-month period a significant stress, are we talking a divorce, moving house, something something Changing very significant, jobs, something that really changes, yeah. that rocks your world, that creates no control in your life at that point in time, there's a 30% higher risk of developing a health issue or even premature death. It's, it's quite significant. They then looked at the group who tangibly gave to others. They actually gave materially that they could say that so many hours of day you're either caring for elderly individuals, you're caring for kids, you're caring for loved ones, you're ca- but it was tangible. Volunteering at a pet shelter, whatever, yeah. Exactly. So, so what they found was not a 30% increased risk of mortality or developing a health issue in response to a crisis or a stress. Not a 20%, not a 15%, not a 10%, not a 5%, zero. There was no impact of stress on their lives in terms of their health if they cared for others 
Mm-hmm. And the only difference in their chemistry was high levels of oxytocin in response to the caring that they were involved in. There's also a study looking at charity. Again, looking at oxytocin as the mediating or driving force. This, this study was uh, published in the journal Hormones and Behavior. So basically, the narrative of the study or, or the theme of the study was, does greater charitable involvement lessen the association between stress and the new onset of ailments? So basically, giving more of yourself in every single way, does it prevent you from developing stress-related uh, ailments? Now, there are 1,200 people in the study, and it was over that's an extended... A good, that's a good sample. That's yeah? a great sample. So the first one is about 1,000. The second one is about 1,200. So they're solid samples. But they looked at... They didn't just... Charity does is not just about doing an EFT. It was giving money, yes, but working for a charity was important. Attending community or group meetings, participating, giving of your time, donating blood, etc. And they looked at how many charitable activities you performed over a period of time and how many stresses you were confronted with. And basically what they worked out is that on average, the good person, someone who's, uh, you know, a contributing member of society will give of themselves about 13 times a week. They'll experience six stresses a week. And if you stay along those lines, you're pretty buffered. And the more you gave, the more you give of yourself, the more you lessen the association between stress and the onset of new ailments. Basically, what I'm saying is that the more you give, the less likely you are to have any stress-related disorder, according to the study. And there are countless studies showing the same thing. But I don't want to like bore you with the science. Compassion is another interesting behavioral trait or emotion. Now, in, in terms of compassion, there was probably the best studies on this. There was actually four studies that were put in a collective involving 300 participants. And what they found is when we compassionate, when we are stressed... Our cortisol is less. Our heart rate is less. Okay, so we'll protect us from those uh, you know, heart attacks and strokes and high blood pressure. Our blood pressure is less. And also our inflammatory responses are less. So basically what I'm saying is a lot of the negative effects associated with stress, if we are compassionate when we are in crisis, that's the last thing we typically do. Yeah. But if we are compassionate when in crisis to other people, all of a sudden, we we see our, our, our physiology and biology completely turn on its head to this to the extent where we are protected from whatever we are going through. That's incredible. I'm speaking to Richard Sutton, and if you've got any questions about stress, about how to manage stress, about your stress stress situation, I did say I think we should do a poll of uh, you know tell us your. Tell us your your stress levels. If you think of your current stress levels, rate them from 1 to 10. You know, are you perhaps sitting at an 8? Are you perhaps sitting at a 3? Are you perhaps sitting at a 5 or a 6.5? 1 being a little bit of stress or no stress and 10 being a lot of stress. You don't have to sign your name, but just give us an idea. And how do you do that? 34519, that's the SMS line. You can also text us on 061-895-1019. Unsigned sending uh, through this lovely image that comes from Brainy Quote. It says, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. And so, it was said by so Charles R. Swindle. Swindle. So true. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, Chaim says... Okay, Chaim, we need those details of your medications, otherwise Richard can't. Oh, we, tell we, we certainly, we certainly <laughs> don't want to dispense any medical advice over the air, um, but but it's in terms of direction and and seeing the right professionals yes. for for what he's suffering with. Uh, I certainly need to know a little bit more before I yeah, comment. And he was just asking, you know, is it is it a bad thing to be on 
anti-stress medication long term. Um, I think so, I mean, if, you're, if your very life is at threat, it's not a bad thing. Um, but if there are ways to get off, uh, certainly, certainly one, one should work in that direction. But, you know, just while, while we're on this point, supportive communication – um, there's, it, it's, it, there was a very interesting study. It was, uh, by the University of Arizona. And it basically wanted to see is if you support other people when you're in crisis, what happens to you? So you're both confronted with a stress simulation or stress situation. Um, and what you're doing to the person next to you or what you're contributing to the person next to you is, is saying, you can do it. We can get through this. We've got this. Don't stress. It's, one it's, foot it's, in front of the other. One foot in front of the other. It's yeah. going to be over soon. Nothing to worry about. What happens to you in those situations? And what they found was that the degree of care and the expression of support during a crisis, during a, a challenging situation, determines how much cortisol you produce and your heart rate response to stress. So basically what I'm saying is that the more support you give to someone during your own crisis and their crisis potentially, the less the biological threat to your system fundamentally. And I've, what I've covered now was care, charity, supportive communication, empathy. These are fundamental traits of women. They're naturally caring. They're naturally empathetic. They're naturally supportive. And all you have to do as, as a woman is tap into this intrinsic nature. Well, Men can learn mothers, a lot from right? it. I mean, that's, we're born to be mothers. You're so born, this that's is why we have you. those qualities. And would we be confronted with the same stress crisis as we are today if, if people were tapping into this? Probably not. Probably not. But what we're following now as a societal norm is that when we stressed, introverts, when we stressed, don't, don't share your experience. When we stressed, pretend that everything is fine. That intolerance of weakness is, is all too prevalent. You've got to turn it on its head. You've got to get back to our intrinsic nature, care, support, empathy. That is where this this battle is won and lost. All right. So, um, unsigned, wanting to know, would having a pet reduce stress levels? Very much so. If Depends you love, on what if, your pet does. If you, if you like it, I, th- I think maybe if it's a reptile, it might not. Um, cause I don't have, there's not much feedback, but certainly, <laughs> certainly with most pets, there's, there's no question that it's, that especially it anything tactile, anything, anything tactile, cause you're looking after it, you're patting it. You know, there's, there's that physical contact, you know, when a, when a puppy licks your face, you know, or your chin or whatever, it's, it's tactile. It's, it's, well, that's, and it's, it's releasing oxytocin. So yeah. it's one, it's the dynamic between you and the pet. It's two, it's the tactile element. Um, and also you, you're showing love for, for another creature. And you have to care for them. You have to look after them. You have to care for them. Yeah, exactly. So f- for sure, there's no question that after, think about it. I mean, if you think logically, after a long, hard day, you come home and the dogs are waiting for you at the gates. You know, the, as hard as the day was, you just break into a smile and, and everything's fine for that particular moment yeah. in time. So. So very, that's very much, it's, it's certainly would, would contribute to lowering stress. But really what I, you know, the, the whole narrative around today is, is I'd like to stress two things is, is one, the way you behave. So focus a lot on our behavior during crisis. Don't introverse, reach out, connect with people, change your, your base characteristics to that of being more supportive, being more empathetic, being more caring, being more compassionate. Change your very nature in a crisis and you yourself will be buffered from the stress. But what I'd also like to mention is the way you see it is the way it affects you. So if you see a stress as an opportunity to thrive and succeed in life, that's the way stress will affect you. If you see it as a crisis that's going to 
result in a breakdown of all systems, that's the way it's going to affect you. There was actually a very, very interesting study, um, and it was in the journal Health Psychology, and it involved 30,000 people over eight years. And all the study wanted to do was to determine if you see stress as a negative in your life, how does it affect your health? That's all I wanted to see. So Did it that, define what that stress was? No. So just, uh, you, just stress uh, no, in so general. If I ask you a question, is stress bad for you? Forget about what Not we discussed today. today. <laughs> okay, before before I came in today, is stress bad for you? Depends. Okay, so you, you, the bottom line. Because I know that sometimes I need to be stressed in order to propel so me th- to do something. But if you've been stressed for a long period of time, is stress bad for you? Yes, yes, definitely. Okay, so that's the answer. So that's what they were saying is, do you believe that when you get stressed, it's going to affect your health and it's bad for you? When you get stressed, it's going to affect you. So that was the question they were asking the group. 30,000 people over eight-year period. Hmm. So what they did is they monitored each individual over a year and, you know, took a whole bunch of, of data and, and measured it up at the end of the eight years. And what they found was those individuals who had a stress in the year, not a significant stress, but it had, it had enough of a, of, of an unsettling event in the year, had a 3.5% higher risk of developing health issues in the coming year. Three, 3.5%. Negligible. You know, 96.5% chance of being fine. Those individuals who didn't have or didn't report a significant, you know, major stress or a niggle, so to speak, in the year, they didn't have a three and a half percent increased risk of developing a health issue. They had a five point one percent increased risk if they believed that stress was bad for them. What I'm saying is that those individuals who didn't have a stress but believed that stress was bad for them had a five point one increased risk of developing a health issue in that following year. But this wasn't the study. Okay. okay. What they found was that if you combined it. If you believe that stress is bad for your health and you do have a lot of stress in your life, the risk of developing health issues doesn't go to 5.1%. It goes to 43%. Almost one in two people will develop health issues in response to stress if they believe that stress is bad for them. And the world is, is, is propagating. The stories we tell ourselves. Exactly. The world is propagating the fact that stress is big and bad. And that's what I'm saying. There are two faces to it. Short stress is great. Long stress is, is not great. And you can shut it down. You have the power. And the power is really determined by how you behave, how you see it in a crisis. And then your lifestyle certainly contributes to it as well. Hmm. Just looking at, I mean, that was the, the negative side of it. And if you, th- I'm just giving you a quick stat, is that at least 33.7% of the world's population believe that stress is bad for them. At least, I mean, that's a, it's, I would say it's considerably more. All you have to do is pick up today's newspaper and you'll know how bad it is for you. <laughs> um, Richard, I want to ask you about... How important is it to understand that there's meaning behind our stress when we bring in a spiritual element? Okay, so that's – but before that, I need to get to some of these uh, messages that have For come sure. through. Okay, so uh, R says, Richard, what effect does Shabbos and also sleep have on stress? So the first thing that goes generally when we get stressed is sleep. So sleep is, is a part of a restorative cycle in our in our 24-hour day. And – absolutely essential in rebuilding the brain, rebuilding the body. And unfortunately, stress and sleep don't have a great relationship. When we get stressed, we often can't sleep. Or alternatively, when we get stressed, we can't get out of bed. You know, we go into that very depressed and and, and very kind of introverted state. So sleep, it's important to not have too much, too little. They say that, you know, between seven and nine hours is ideal. If you have more than nine hours, it's a day to your nervous system and can create compromises to your health. If you have less than seven hours, again, it, it might be health compromising. But there, there are those 
who are genetically different. Those those individuals, I mean, you heard of the great rabbis, some of them only sleep four hours a day, yeah, three hours a day, and they can live to <laughs> they can live to 105, you know, or 100. Well, they never used to sleep. Exactly. They don't yeah. want to sleep because it's a learning opportunity loss. So sleep sleep's an intro. I mean, that's that's a topic unto itself. And, and, and certainly the more stressed you are, the less you can sleep. And the, and the less you can sleep, the more stressed you are. And there's this whole whole cycle. What was the first part of the question? I forgot. First part of the question was about Shabbos. Does Shabbos... Um, what effect does Shabbos? It's amazing because what what happens often in a, a stressed state is there's just this this overwhelm in the system. So your nervous system is overwhelmed, your hormonal system is overwhelmed, your your uh, immune system is overwhelmed. Everything is upregulated, moving, moving, moving in an upward uh, trajectory. And then Shabbos comes, everything has to shut down because there's no stimuli coming in. But I think isn't it also important of what you do on Shabbos? Well, it's not enough just to unplug. So you know, you're so right. Take that time and use it in caring, in connecting, in that's what prayer, in all of the things that we need. Uh, I'm so, sorry. No, no. It's <laughs> very, very good. And I'll t- I t- I tell you why they're so good. Because one of the shutdown mechanisms for stress is the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve, one of its, its roles is to override the stress effect, sh- literally turn off stress. And how do we stimulate the vagus nerve? Prayer, singing. What do we do at Shul? We pray, we pray and we sing. We pray and you sing. Then you've got the connectivity. So now you're, you now you're reaching mm-hmm. out to the community. You're spending time with, with, you're connecting to people again. What and are we got doing the with time. the connection? You're not Oxy, rushing off somewhere. Oxytocin. And you're putting in less stimuli. So all in all, I mean, Shabbos is, uh, and stress is, I mean, it's, it's anti-venom to stress. Oh, I love that. Uh, there's, there's the no it's probably the antidote to stress. It's antidote, yeah. It's certainly, it's a contributing factor yeah. to it. So it's a, not just unplugging, it's what you're doing with the time now. Very much. Um, Gail, listening to us in Israel, I love this. She says, uh, stop focusing on how stressed you are and remember how blessed you are. No question about it. No. So it's about reframing. Yeah, and reframing. So just, uh, yeah, talking about reframing. Okay, so there was, I remember, I'm talking about the physical. Manifestations, yes. you know, there's there's a whole religious and spiritual side to it, which I'm not qualified to even engage in. We we need to get top rabbis to 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 engage on that level. But I'm talking about the physical. I've yet to read. Huh? I've yet to meet a rabbi who can engage on what you are, and I'm not saying that there aren't. I'm just saying that I haven't. No, there's plenty, met them who plenty. can on the way that you are talking about the physical body, who can talk about the spiritual body like that. I'm sure there's, there's many. But anyway, I'm, All right, I'm, get I'm, hold let me of just me. talk Kathy about what, what I, com, yeah. let, let me talk about what I, what I know. All right. So there was, there was three, there was a trilogy of Harvard studies. So I've just talked about one study. We say, if you see stress negatively, it affects your health negatively. Now, what happens if you see stress positively? So the first of the Harvard studies was by Jeremy Jamison, one of my, my favorite researchers. So they, they did these three studies, groundbreaking, just off the charts um, in terms of the insights. The first study involved 50 participants, and they randomly divided um, the group into three. So what they, what they told the participants in response to a stress simulation that was upcoming is that when you get stressed – you're going to perform better. You're going to thrive under the circuit. The heart rate response that you feel, the respiration, the sweaty palms, the elevation of immune function, the gestures arms, the endorphins, the blood pressure, that means you're going to thrive and excel in that task that we're going to give you. <laughs> the second group, what they told was that if you get stressed, disaster. If You, you can't get stressed in the stress simulation because you're going to fail. The third group was given no narrative. So they're basically like you and me in terms of the context of our lives. And they looked specifically at cardiovascular responses. So what happened in terms of blood pressure 
and heart cardiac output in response to stress. So we know that typically when we get adrenalized, our blood pressure spikes. So we have this, this spike in blood pressure, and that causes the damage to the heart and the brain, you know, the risk of, of strokes. So what they found in this group and focusing specifically on the cardiovascular system is that only the group that reappraised stress had a change in their blood pressure profile. Instead of a constricted mm-hmm. artery, they had a dilated artery and their cardiac output was far greater. So what I'm saying is that all the risk of the major risks of adrenaline, which is the risk of cardiovascular system compromise, uh, neurological compromise in the terms of stroke, was mitig- or, or completely neutralized in response to the reappraisal. But they also found that the individuals in ex- when exposed to the task also had a greater degree of attention and focus. But one has to understand that the primary emotion that drives stress is fear. Like, how do we feel when stress? We're scared. We feel out of control when we feel stressed. And when we when we feel fear... Our heart rate goes up, our respiration goes up, circulation to the brain is up, energy reserves are liberated, circulation to the muscle and the legs is elevated, endorphins release, immune system mobilized, and blood pressure spikes. That is the experience that we feel when we are scared. That is the, biology, the uh, biological manifestation yeah. of fear. If I were to take every single component that I've described now, everything, identical, but I replace the increase in blood pressure and constricted arteries with a dilation of arteries and lowered blood pressure in response to the same situation, it's not the biology of fear. It's the biology of courage. Gosh. So we have the ability to change our situations. Just in perspective. Just, just perspective. from a perspective. And, you know, Mandela said courage is not the absence of fear, but triumph over it. And I want to take it a step further. I want to take it a step further saying that fear, courage is not intrinsic. It can be learned, and it can be learned. Your courage is learned in crisis. If you reframe your situation as a positive experience that is going to move you forward in life, move you forward on an emotional level, move you forward on a physical level, move you forward as a person, help you grow, all of a sudden you become a courageous individual as opposed to a fearful individual. Absolutely incredible. Just talking about you, I've only got a couple of minutes, I know. I know, and we've got messages. We've got so many messages. People want to talk to you. Okay, let me answer the messages. (laughs) Okay, so uh, Yvonne Thanks, Yvonne. Nice to hear from you. She says, love this topic. Can one get addicted to stress or rather the hormones that are secreted? We need it. My 32-year-old son is active in high-stress or dangerous sports, car racing, bungee jumping, parachuting, etc. Why? We've all, we've all know adrenaline junkies. Yeah, it's the endorphins and endorphins that? that are released, these opiate compounds that are released in response to a, a, a stressful or threatening situation. So the answer is yes, we can get addicted to that feeling because that, that feeling gives us potential, makes us feel alive, it makes us move forward, and we need it. And sometimes our lives are very monotonous and very routine and almost very sedated in a sense. So some people are addicted to this. And the only difference between a good and bad stress in this situation is if if it's transient, going bungee jumping is very transient. Yeah. As you get excited, it's turned off. No issues whatsoever. It doesn't detract from health or life. There you it go. It just adds value if, if that's what you enjoy, bungee jumping. But but so so there, there's this element there's this element of invigoration that and they're just tapping into this elements of invigoration that stress offers. So yes, we can get addicted to it, but we just want to make sure that it's on when we need it and off when we don't need it. And that in that way, we'll ensure that we don't become compromised from a health perspective. Awesome. Um, Unsigned says hi again. Hugging pet hundred percent stress reliever. Also, Richard, have you heard of Hug a Tree? Uh, there's a website. Sounds strange. Yet tree supposedly takes take stress away from us. Now, I saw a study that they did, Richard, where they looked at people who went hiking in forests, even if it was for a short time, once a week, 
And their stress levels were different because they apparently being out amongst nature, and I think we've discussed that before as well, that also reduces the color spectrum, the sounds, the peace, the quiet, the lack of uh, electromagnetic fields. Very healthy environment. Yeah. Very healthy environment. Okay. Somebody's also sent through a voice note. Unfortunately, I can't, I can't hear it. I'm having trouble playing it. So if you can just type us very, very quickly. Rich, you're going to wrap up. I'm going to wrap up. So that just on that Harvard trilogy of studies. So there was the, the last of the studies for me was the most exciting. And because it looked at what happens when we get stressed to our mental agility and mental strength. What happens if we reframe it? Because we know if we're confronted with a crisis, what happens to our brain? It literally freezes. Yeah. You know, we, we can't think clearly. But there are certain individuals. This is a difference between Kevin before and now. Kevin is Anderson. Kevin right. Anderson before, before you know, and, and now. Is that there are individuals, when we're confronted with a the stress, they ex- they, all of a sudden they lift into another gear. Why? How? And it's purely the way they see it. And I'll tell you a little bit about the study quickly. So there were 60 people in the study. And they divided the group into a stress reappraisal group and a no instruction group. So basically, half the group, stress, when confronted with an exam or an academically challenging situation, the more you feel stressed, the better you're going to perform. And they, they convinced that group. It gave them three journal articles to read and studies and conclusions. And the narrative was so well constructed. They then, what, what they also did was they looked at a salivary enzyme called alpha amylase. So basically, this, this salivary enzyme tells you what's happening in your neurochemistry. It tells you about how much dopamine's in your brain, how much norepinephrine, how much uh, epinephrine, adrenaline, noradrenaline, dopamine. These are, these are cognitive facilitators. And then they exposed them to a mock exam, but it wasn't just any mock exam. It was a mock exam of the Harvard GRE exam, the entrance exam to Harvard. They gave... 60 participants to this exam, half the group were told that when they feel their heart rate go, they feel their palms sweat, when they feel respiration, when they feel angst, that is when they're going to thrive and pull and it's going to help them. So you know exactly where I'm going with this, is that at the end of the mock exam, they measured this alpha amylase, they found that the neurochemistry of that group that reappraised stress was far more conducive to performing academically. Than the other group. And they also found that those individual reappraisers scored higher on average. The average mark in the group, in the reappraisal group was higher than the non-reappraisal group. But what they didn't tell the group was that it, that was not the study. They wanted to see if, or for one narrative, it could change their life. One, two, three months later, every single one of those 60 members had to write their entrance exam to Harvard. And what they wanted to see was what happened to the scores. And on average, the group that was in the reappraisal group, just off that one session, scored higher. And they cited their reappraisal of stress as the trigger in their success going forward. So this is how powerful the way we see it. So the, really the message, just to sum up, the message of today is change the way you see stress. If you see it as an advantage, it will be. Change the way you behave when you stress. If you connect to other people in your crisis, stress will not have a negative effect. It will not take hold of you. And we're all in crisis. And that's why we have something called Ubuntu. Use it. Richard Sutton, thank you very, very much. Um, we didn't even get a chance to talk about your book. You're yes. going to have to come back. I'll have to come back. Yes. <laughs> we're going to talk about the stress code. But uh, thank you so much to Richard Sutton. If you want to get in touch with him, you want to find out more, you want to you know, just find out what else he does, go and check out his website at suttonhealth.co.za. And... Um, are you taking on clients yet? Uh, no, because I don't, I don't work exclusively in South Africa anymore. So because I work between here and, uh, and abroad, I actually can't take on, on new individuals. I take on corporate clients, yeah. but not individual clients at the moment. Okay, well, we'll 
I'm sure that we all look forward to seeing what uh, what Maria Sharapova is going to be doing in the next, you know, year or two. Thanks so much, Kat. Thank you so much, Richard. And uh, to you, have a wonderful week. You know what? Don't stress. It's all going to be good. It's all there for a reason. And uh, just motivate yourself. Just reframe it. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. All right. God bless. See ya. Bye.